This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you today? It is so good to have you along. Today and shortly before the news headlines at half past 12 today, dairy farmers do not like the idea of Coles buying dairy factories. And they want the ACCC, the competition watchdog, to put an end to block Coles from buying a couple of dairy factories in Victoria and New South Wales. We'll get to that shortly. And also after half past 12 today, taking a closer look at those two new varieties of lupins that are going to be available for WA farmers to sow next year. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Well, the ongoing lumpy skin disease trade disruption to Indonesia has seen live cattle exports out of the broom port drop by more than 50% this year. WA's cattle exports are now at a trickle, with Indonesia suspending trade at one WA export facility and imposing costly LSD testing requirements on two other broom facilities. With the countdown on to the end of the dry season, pastoralists in the north are facing trading conditions likened to the years immediately following the 2011 live export ban. Ken Bryant is the account manager at Northern Rural Supplies in the Kimberley. He says the export numbers reveal how difficult it is to find a market for cattle. Yeah, numbers would indicate that um, we are going to be down a fair bit. Um, last year was down due to restockers over east and a lot of cattle going to southern markets feedlots, but the current numbers would indicate we're only around about that 43,000 out of broom. And traditionally, over the last 10-year average, it's a, a high 90 to $100,000 uh, thousand head um, port. So, yeah, this late stage in the season, it um, looks like there's going to be a fair few cattle still still needing to go. Down by 50% or more. How do you even begin to make sense of that? Did, is it is it any way that you saw this year going? Um, no, well, I guess once we had went through COVID and that, no year's been the same since, but this one has been particularly different again. Yeah, I actually don't know how you make up the numbers now. Yeah, I'm really not too sure. Just, the numbers are just facts and they speak for themselves. That's just what's gone out and what normally goes out. So there's obviously still a lot of cattle out there that uh, need to be sold. Where are we at then in the season? How many more weeks or months do we have to potentially move cattle out of the Kimberley? Well, it's September, so um, most of the most of the cattle are um, starting to either slip back or they're certainly not gaining as much weight as they, they probably should be. Um, it's getting hotter, so that makes it challenging for both people and, and cattle. So, yeah, you'd like to think in the next month they'd, they'd need to get a, a wriggle on if they need to, to empty out too many more. A lot of people are obviously nervous. They're starting to get a lot of inquiry about polypipe and bits and pieces and they're trying to wrap around their head just how they handle it going forward if, if they can't move these cattle. But um, I guess until we know what the outcome is over the next few days... It's still too early to say. Looking at these port figures out of Broome, we've got about close to 45,000 head out of Broome this year. That's down 
just over 50% compared to the 10-year average. Well, we're talking about over 55,000 head of cattle. Do you think that the government and the people who are doing these trade discussions with Indonesia at the moment have any kind of concept around what 55,000 head of cattle does to to country like the Kimberley? Um, probably can't answer whether they have a full understanding of it or not, but you'd certainly hope so. Remember back to the live export ban, the effects that had on the Kimberley and the, and the other businesses, not just the pastoralists, the, the transport companies, the helicopter pilots, everyone involved in it, the small towns all suffered as well. So it does have an awful follow-on effect, but as, a, as I say, we really need to wait and find out what's happening over these next few days and, and what the plan really is. Do those numbers scare you, looking at them like that? Yeah, it's obviously, it's obviously a concern for them and um, be a lot of individuals that are really nervous on it. Um, the cost of production is going up on a falling cattle market and then not being able to sell them at all. At the moment, would um, would be making a lot of people panic, I think, yeah. Broome-based Northern Rural Supplies Account Manager Ken Bryant speaking to Alice Marshall. It is important to note Australia's Acting Chief Veterinary Officer says lumpy skin disease has never been detected in Australia. 10 past 12. Cattle Australia's Chief Executive Officer Luke Bowen has stepped down from his leadership role, citing health reasons. Taking effect immediately, Cattle Australia Director Adam Coffey will step in as the interim CEO while the board seeks to recruit a permanent replacement. A first-generation farmer, Adam Coffey, has a mixed breeding and trading enterprise on 2,500 hectares at Miriam Vale, just south of Rockhampton on the Queensland coast. He says the CEO role is not one he was seeking, but he's happy to help. Interim CEO certainly wasn't on my radar, but we, we do what we have to do when uh, when the chance comes along or, or you know when when the opportunity arises. So, look, we're as an organisation, we're we're very sad to see Luke go. He's um been fantastic in the role, and I think there are many people across the industry who who know Luke and are aware of you know his capacity and, and what he's achieved over the years. And I think the um the messages of support that have flown in certainly to me and I know to Luke have really proved that so look Luke's Luke's um, as I say stepped aside for health reasons he's got something he's got to sort out and we um, remain fully supportive and hope to re-engage him uh, in the future and uh, yeah I guess I've stepped into the interim CEO role uh, at a pretty critical time Um, you know as I alluded we've got a lot of balls in the air in terms of I guess externally what's going on in industry around sort of uh, lumpy skin and and, uh, ongoing biosecurity concerns there's there is a bit of downward pressure on the market as everyone's aware acknowledging that this is certainly in northern areas kind of our pinch time of the year anyway so we're we're sort of working where we can I guess on all of these issues to to turn that around Um, and then again internally we, we have a lot to do we've sort of got got our, our internal reviews going on all heading towards our AGM so yeah it's a busy time and um, I guess the opportunity out of this is uh, for me to step in as a as a producer and, and a director on the board to um, to uh, act as CEO until we get somebody um, somebody in that seat permanently. It's a big job to step into even just as interim CEO so do you have a time frame at all in terms of how long you'll be in this interim CEO position and is now the time to be looking for that permanent replacement? 
Yeah, look, we've you know we're initiating that process already in in terms of finding a replacement, and I've I've committed to look. We have an AGM in in November. I can commit to then or if needs be till the end of the year. We don't want to rush this process, and as a board, we're very comfortable that we've got you know good processes in place. We've got good people around us. We've got a very capable crew uh, you know, of staff. You know, split between Canberra and Brisbane. That um, you know that will be business as usual. So. We're not going to rush the recruitment process or, or trying to find someone. We want to make sure we find the right person. And if that takes a little bit of time, then um, then so be it. And you touched on them, but, you know, looking forward to the next few months, those priorities for Cattle Australia, are they really lumpy skin disease, that downward trend in the market and that forecast, which is expected to come next week, of calling an El Nino? Yeah, look, as a producer, I, I mean, I speak for myself. We don't uh, really put too much emphasis on, on forecasts, acknowledging that seasons fluctuate and we've had a pretty good run over the last few years. Here in Miriamvale or on our place, we actually had 34 mil last week. So <laughs> I, if that's what El Nino looks like, then I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. But, um, it, you know, that was just a good reminder. That, and you speak to a lot of producers who who are more than aware that, you know, El Nino, La Nina, whatever the sort of overarching drivers of the season are, you, you know, that doesn't really mean much in terms of whether you do or, or don't get uh, an adequate or, or better than average season. So, you know, there are a lot of one percenters kicking around at the moment in our industry and it's it's um it's not as if we can pluck out the, the one solution to, to kind of fix the situation. Um, having said that, we're very aware of it and we're really aware, I guess, particularly of northern producers and the pressures they're on in terms of uh, what's happening with exports to Indonesia. So we're certainly fully engaged in that process and, um, and yeah, assisting wherever we can to, to make sure that we get the, the right outcome there. Interim CEO of Cattle Australia, Adam Coffey, with Lucy Cooper. Quarter past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Dairy farmers are stepping up their campaign to get regulators to block a sale of dairy factories to the supermarket giant Coles. Earlier this year, milk processor Saputo announced it had sold its Laverton factory in Victoria and Erskine plant uh, in New South Wales to Coles for a total of $105 million dollars. The ACCC is now deciding if a supermarket owning processing factories is anti-competitive. For Australian Dairy Farmers President Rick Gladigo, the decision is clear. The sale should be blocked. Yeah, look, we're really concerned about about what this could mean, not just short term, while, while Coles and Saputo say, oh, look, it's all good for farmers short, you know, we're all fine or whatever, contracts, etc. It's the longer term of what this actually means. It's it's the beyond the five years as well. So you know, our, our concerns centre around that that losing transparency, losing, you know, the, the bargain, bargaining power and balance that it can create and the competition, the loss of competition in that region and, and certainly the ACCC because they come out with this statement of intent wanting to seek more more information from the industry is there's certainly concerns around that New South Wales dairy plant and what that means to that probably more so the southern milk suppliers in in New South Wales and so that Erskine factory you know we know that has you know it's running at 50 percent capacity so coals aren't going to be happy with that they're going to want to put more milk through that but also what does it mean for purchasing milk it's the farm gate price we know that coals are paying a great price currently but once you dominate a market, what is that going to mean? You know, they're not going to continue paying a, a price that's over and above 
um, when you've got no competition there to uh, to make you want to pay it. Is part of your concern here that the company looking to buy these factories was the architect of Dollar Milk, which put a cap essentially on on fresh milk prices in Australia for a period of nearly ten years? Oh, definitely. We've we've seen how they've operated. We've we've seen the care factor, and we all took the hit. We've seen what it's it's helped to do the industry. It's not the only reason, but we've seen what it's done a lot in that Queensland, New South Wales market, even WA market, and in parts to South Australia and and New South Wales uh, in Victoria. Is dollar milk had a huge effect for a lot of uh, processes and and what that meant back to the farm gate and the farm gate price. It, it it just destroyed what used to be that premium market that it was. So that's our concern is then going, well, you're now going to have a retailer who owns from, they don't own the farms, but they own farm gate price right through to the shop shelf. And there's no third party in between that they're currently dealing with uh, under their current current situation. So they've now got, they'll, not, not now, they'll have the possibility of controlling all that and controlling exactly what those margins are in between. If you're looking at competition, though, uh, there's Bega, Saputo, Fonterra, Lactalis, Norco. There are a lot of milk processors out there. Is it a hard sell to something like the ACCC that a supermarket entering this space is going to reduce competition? It is if if not all those processes aren't all operating in those regions. So that Bega region or whatever, there's not that many processes operating. You've got Saputo and Bega operating in there, and I think Coles within reason. But you take Saputo out of it, could leave you with Bega and Coles. You've made this point a few times that having Coles become a milk processor takes out a step in the chain. Usually there's the dairy farmer, there's the processor, then there's a the supermarket. But in theory, taking out the middleman, could, couldn't that give more value to dairy farmers? It might in the short term, but I don't think it will in the long term. So uh, no, obviously they want to make a margin there about their shareholders. And we're seeing this, you know, is, is what is really the care factor when we've just seen you know, it's in the papers now today about the amount of New Zealand product now coming into Australia, and it's coming in because the two two supermarkets are bringing it in. It's a cheaper product than Australian product. We'll bring that in. Is there really a care about the Australian dairy farmer, or is there actually a care about their bottom line? And I think that's you know, I think think what they're currently doing is is a fairly good indication. So, what are you hoping you're expecting to hear from the ACCC next week? What are you hoping the decision will be? Well, one is we hope hope that they actually don't approve it and it doesn't go ahead and then, right, put it back out in the market and, and you know, what other opportunities are there there? And B is with under the perishable goods inquiry, um, even the ACCC have actually mentioned it, but we certainly want to see the food and grocery code actually become mandatory and more in line with, with the uh, dairy mandatory code. But if they're not going to... If they're going to allow this sale to happen, there needs to be things in place that the farmer's going to be protected into the long term. Have you tried to talk to Coles about their decision to buy these factories? Have they told you anything? No, we haven't had any direct contact with Coles at all on this one. President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, speaking to Warwick Long, and Coles has been contacted for comment. 20 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And in about 10 minutes, an update from the newsroom for you and then checking weather conditions around Western Australia. And I do know it did get quite cold overnight in some place. Those minimum temperatures, zero in some parts, some parts getting down to minus two degrees. 
So if you've got an update on that situation as far as the F word goes, any frost in your part, let me know. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four, and we'll check with the bureau if there are any more really cold conditions on the way. Shortly here in the country, are twenty one past twelve. A European study shows if the agricultural chemical glyphosate is banned in Australia, it's going to cost farmers a lot of money. The reason this is a possibility is because a class action kicked off in Australia this week over the health impacts of using glyphosate. It's against multinational chemical company Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer. About 800 cancer victims allege exposure to Roundup, a product that contains glyphosate, caused their non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Professor Robert Finger is a professor of agriculture who works with the World Food Systems Centre in Switzerland. He's reviewed 19 studies that have been done on the cost of banning glyphosate in some European countries. He says farmers' profits have been significantly affected. One big distinction is between the arable crops and the perennial crops. And for the perennial crops, the costs are much higher. So, for example, there are studies showing for French vineyards that the cost might be more than 500 euros um, per hectare a year. And for the arable crops, it really ranges from a few euro to um, 100 or, or a bit more euros per hectare. But um, still, that might be very significant because um, it still reflects an important uh, part of the profit margin for some of these farming systems. What about the kinds of uh, uses that the glyphosate is, is important for? Are you seeing any difference in the way that people are using glyphosate in countries where it's been banned or they, they're concerned about its use in, in some way? Glyphosate is used for a wide range of things in European agriculture. The main application is for weed control in annual and perennial systems, that's very clear, but also termination of cover crops, uh, termination of temporary grasslands and so on, That that's quite important. Um, the cost that we see, like why there is an economic implication of not using glyphosate stems from three major factors. And the first one is um, a key one, namely that's the switch to alternative strategies of weed control, um, like using mechanical tools. And this is more costly in terms of uh, machinery, fuel, labor, and so on. Second, there might be a decline in the yields if the alternative strategies used uh, for weed control are less effective. Um, but this is not the most important issue um, in the studies that we reviewed. And third, uh, a very important one is that not using glyphosate they have indirect economic effects because you have to change your farming system. An important uh, example here is, is obviously the conservation agriculture. So farmers are forced to move away from conservation agriculture, which is currently very profitable for them. Then it also implies um, yeah, cost, opportunity cost, because they cannot continue with that farming system. And did you also look at taxation? Maybe that there is some, a possible to change the taxation treatment of, of some things in order to move people away from glyphosate? Yeah, so um, there are obviously different options how policy can uh, make an intervention here. So we do see, okay, if glyphosate is banned, then um, it might be difficult for fun farmers to um, to cope with it. So there could be some strategies to basically support the farmers on a trajectory. Um, that might be due to uh, providing 
development and support of alternative technologies, but also kind of like supporting the um, advisory service and so on. But there are also um, economic instruments that can be used to push farmers out of um, glyphosate or other pesticides that might be harmful for human health and the environment. Um, and um, one element that is used in European agriculture is subsidies. So basically the farmers get the compensation if they don't use specific products. And a second one that might be also quite interesting is taxation because um, uh, an element could be to make glyphosate more expensive and that uh, reflects in that sense also somehow the um, let's say the the economic uh, cost for the environment that uh, the use of glyphosate has and with that you would make also the alternatives more attractive and um, yeah one thing that we also discussed in the paper is certainly that such a taxation could be part of a bigger strategy of a policy bundle um, that could be used and that also the tax revenues from such a tax could be used to basically um, support alternatives for farmers. But this is not uh, widely used in European agriculture. There are just few countries that use um, pesticide taxation, for example, Denmark. And here the emphasis is not very much on, let's say, glyphosate, because the taxation in the moment is mainly focused on um, taxing let's say, the very toxic products um, highest in the Danish practice and glyphosate is not one of these products. Robert Finger, he's a professor of agriculture at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, speaking to David Clawton. 26 past 12. Two new varieties of lupins will be available for WA farmers to sow next year. They're called Gigi and Rosemont and have been bred by Australian Grain Technologies. AGT's Variety Support Manager Floyd Sullivan and breeder Matt Orbit think farmers will be keen to get their hands on them. So they're very high yielding um, is their key quality that we um, have for them. Uh, so in terms of Gigi, this is a high yielding alternative to durian, which growers are very common, uh, commonly grown. It is a bit of a shorter plant type, like growers are used to with their bit of their barlocks, um, but it's basically has durian maturity. It's got a durian disease package. So what growers uh, face with their durians, they're going to face with their, their gigi, um, but it's significantly higher yielding than durian. Uh, it's about 7% higher yielding than durian. Um, and that one's for the north of the state? This one's for the north of the state, north central of the state. Um, well, technically both of them are for all of the state. We believe that they both have key qualities that will see them fit multiple farming systems. So if a farmer up here believes that Rosemont might be a better fit for them, then they can choose to grow that too, and it will still perform very well. So in terms of Rosemont, its key quality is that it's a slightly slower maturity. Uh, so it's more like that Barlock Coyote that some growers would be used to. It's again, has a very similar disease package to Durian, get good resistances to diseases. What we think is a key difference for Rosemont and the other lupin varieties is that it's quite tall, has a tall plant type, and it has good early vigour and in-season biomass growth. What's the benefit of the extra biomass? Well, the extra biomass, I guess growers have seen a link with potentially weed competitiveness, so they can outshade the weeds that are there. 
that we think that might be a positive for some of those growers. Biomass is a correlation to how much nitrogen fixation you have. So the, the greater the biomass, the more opportunity you have for fixing nitrogen through the nodules in the lupins. Right, so that extra yep. benefit of, of lupins over a yield, the, the nitrogen in the yep. soil. Mm. Interesting. A few years ago, I had a chat with you, Matt, about breeding uh, for controlling blue lupins in narrow leaf lupins. And at the time, you were looking at uh, IMI tolerance and mesodone tolerance. Are you still considering that? Yes, yes. So um, we believe improved herbicide, herbicide tolerance for lupins is very important uh, for growers for controlling their blue lupins. When we had a discussion with the northern grower groups, a key herbicide that they would like in their lupins was IMI. Um, and so we have been pursuing that for the last few years now in generating herbicide tolerances in our lupin varieties. Um, this project is yeah, still ongoing. Um, breeding, unfortunately, is a very slow process, but we're hoping to get something to growers in the next, hopefully the next few years. Nothing immediately, unfortunately, uh, but it would be great to have something to them within maybe five to six years once we have generated this tolerance. And what's the tolerance in, in these two varieties, Gigi and Rosemont? Yep, so the, to the herbicide tolerance for these two are metribuzin. Uh, so that's a very common herbicide used in lupins. Um, and so the tolerance level for metribuzin in Gigi and Rosemont is the same level as durian. Um, so growers will be well aware of how to apply their metribuzin in that crop. Floyd, we've heard from the grains industry of WA that this year fewer hectares than ever yeah. have been planted to legumes, to lupins in particular. The sheep industry is facing a number yeah. of problems. Is AGT going to continue putting resources into breeding lupins for Western Australia? Absolutely. Not only for Western Australia, but the whole of Australia. We see there's a potential marketplace. There's a lot of incredible work being done behind the scenes by various uh, organisations to get um, lupins into human food consumption and there's been a big investment by a lot of stakeholders. Hopefully one day we will crack that. If not, there's a potential uh, for the um, livestock market in South Australia, uh, Southeast Asia for lupins. So we have a lot of people working behind the scene, AGIC, um, Dirty Clean Foods. There's a plethora of companies. Matt's just been to a lupin world conference. We even tried uh, lupin ice cream. Mm. So the benefits for lupins for human health are enormous. We just have to have that key and that magic portion uh, to get people uh, to eat lupins. That is uh, Australian Grain Technologies Variety Support Manager Floyd Sullivan and lupin breeder Dr Matt Albert speaking to Lucinda Jose. And Intergrain launched a new noodle wheat this week. It's been busy. It's called Firefly and Intergrain claims it should yield 10 to 15% better than commonly grown noodle varieties, the Zen and the Kalingari. It is 29 to 1 and Jonathan Beale is here. What's making the news headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. A witness has described the moment he found the victim of a shooting in the Wheatbelt town of Kellerberan. Police were called to a grain silo manufacturer in the town this morning amid reports someone had been shot. A worker at Moylan Grain Silos says he heard bangs and ran outside to find a colleague lying on the ground and a man wearing a face covering. Police are searching for a 25-year-old man. A sole trader in the Great Southern has been fined 
more than $47,000 in the Katanning Magistrates Court after a worker fell from a roof. Brett Sidney Kavanagh pleaded guilty to failing to provide and maintain a safe work environment, causing serious harm. The incident happened in August 2020. The court heard no risk assessment was done prior to starting the work and that no fall protection was provided. And the Prime Minister has met China's second most senior leader on the sidelines of the East Asia Summit in Jakarta. Anthony Albanese and the Premier Li Chung have discussed regional tensions, China's ongoing trade restrictions on Australian goods and Australian citizens imprisoned in China. Premier Li has again invited Mr Albanese to visit Beijing before the end of the year. More news, Belinda, at one. Jonathan, thank you for the update. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Shortly heading into the sale yards, just to look at the prices being received over the last sort of months or, or so, because right across the country, in the last sort of four to six weeks, some sheep have been selling for as little as a dollar a head. So we're going to catch up with the president of the Australian Livestock and Property Agents Association, Peter Cabot, shortly and get his thoughts on what is going on and a bit of a look ahead for the outlook. Also, speaking of the sale yards, heading to Mount Barker just before the news at one, taking a look at the yarding and the prices at the Mount Barker cattle market today. This on the text from the Weather Wally who says, Yes, Jack paid a visit to Lake Grace and Newtigate last night. Luckily, he was only in town 30 minutes before he was run out of town. Collie had nearly minus two, but luckily there was no wheat crops there. Everyone may have dodged a bullet there. A warm, dry period coming till next Wednesday when a significant rain band will hit the lower west coast. Thank you, Weather Wally. Let's see how accurate that is when we cross to the Bureau of Meteorology with uh, a catch-up with Luke Huntington this afternoon. Luke, what is the story across the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. It's uh, yeah, it's a very quiet um, spring day across um, the Southwest Land Division uh, today. So, we do have a uh, high pressure system just developing south of the state at the moment. So that's keeping conditions relatively uh, cloud free at the moment and clear of any rainfall. Um, yeah, there were there were some um, some frost around this morning. Um, some places got down into the negative territory, including Cunderdon. Um, but it looks like tomorrow morning's uh, probably a little bit warmer through the ag areas. Uh, there's going to be a little bit more wind around to keep the temperature up but it's still going to be quite a cold night through those parts um, probably temperatures between around uh, three and four degrees the area that for the southwest land division that would get frost tomorrow morning would probably be through the inland southeast coastal district so just to, to the areas inland of Esperance, the Esperance region um, so seven gums is a prime example of where, you, where it usually gets a little bit cool um, we're going for around one or two degrees there tomorrow morning so that would be the area of uh, the risk of morning frost tomorrow morning um, but no precipitation to speak of tomorrow the high does move a little bit further east and we go into a bit more of a northeasterly regime so many locations in the southern half tomorrow will be about, be about five degrees warmer than uh, today uh, just bring down that warmer air from the north um, and then as we head into Saturday uh, that's where we get the next system coming through um, and it's in it's in the term of a weak cold front that does move through during the afternoon and evening the actual cold cold front is pretty weak so it's um not going to deliver too much rainfall and where it does deliver the rainfall it's going to be sort of in that far southwestern corner um, with maybe one to five millimeters um, and then perhaps up to two millimeters through the lower west um, but 
uh, just ahead of the front, there is a chance of some mid-level thunderstorms um, right through the uh, western and southern parts of the southwest land division. But those thunderstorms are not expected to deliver much rainfall, uh, if any. So only zero to one millimetres associated with that. So if anyone's looking for rainfall, this is probably not the event uh, for it. Um, then as we head into Sunday, the, the actual front weakens and moves east. We're just uh, left with sort of a high-pressure ridge developing over the region. And then uh, similar conditions for Monday as well. The high-pressure ridge just um, stagnates over that region, so no real uh, precipitation to speak of. And, um, yeah, in the, in the longer term, the next decent chance of getting some rainfall uh, would be that Wednesday period with uh, um, the models in, are indicating a strong cold front to move through. And then looking into northern and eastern parts of the state, what can you see, Luke? Yeah, generally quiet um, through those areas as well. So through the Pilbara-Kimberley region, um, just with that high developing to the south, it, it has been quite windy up there at the moment with those gusty southeasterly winds. Uh, that'll continue again uh, tomorrow as well, uh, just as the high uh, strengthens and moves east. Um, those winds will probably uh, ease a little bit over the weekend, um, but we're not expecting any precipitation for the for the northern or eastern uh, half on tomorrow morning. Uh, there's a frost potential over the southern goldfields, so about round south of Kalgoorlie um, and then across to the Eucla region into the southern parts of the south interior, we may some, see some frost um, with minimum temperatures getting down uh, into that sort of one to zero degree uh, area. Um, and as I said, there's not too much on the weekend. The only chance of any weather would be um, just some mid-level thunderstorms forming on the trough through the Eucla region and into eastern parts of the goldfields and south interior. But uh, these thunderstorms are similar to the ones that potentially move through the southwest land division on Saturday. They're not going to produce much rainfall, so generally dry thunderstorms associated with that. And the warnings this afternoon? Uh, there are no current warnings. Great. Thank you so much, Luke. Appreciate that. 22 to 1. And taking a look now at the rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Yeah, in the northern and eastern forecast districts, nothing in the Kimberley or the Pilbara or the Gascoigne, the interior or the goldfields, but in the Eucla, a little bit around. Air and Red Rocks Point both recorded six mils, but nothing on the islands. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, the only region to get more than two mils was the southern coastal. Beaumont West had seven. Erin Air and S, uh, sorry, Erin Air had six, Esperance eight, and at the airport at Esperance there was nine mills. Hopeton and Hopeton North both recorded six, Mount Howick seven, Oakmarsh Farm 11, Tolina Downs nine, and the Duke recorded six. I did do a bit of a ring around to some farmers all throughout the grain belt, and a lot of the farmers were saying, yeah, there was a bit of, bit of ice around here and there, but no one would seem to be too alarmed. That's north of the Great Eastern Highway, and then right down to sort of Narragin Wickipan Way. I even had a ch quick chat to Garen Nell, who's a Narragin-based frost guru, who's just saying he reckons there was a little bit of frost around in the susceptible hollows. And, of course, it is getting to that time of the season where farmers are certainly a bit nervous listening to everything that Luke's just saying there. Hey, just a quick shout-out about the shooting incident in Kellebaran this morning. Um, the man is still believed to be uh, on the loose somewhere in that Kellebaran Ben Cubbon area. There will be a media conference happening in around about five minutes' time, so thoughts go out to the families of those involved and to witnesses. Let's hope no one else gets hurt or killed. 
Thanks for that, Richard. 20 minutes to one. Off to Mount Barker just before the news. One, getting the details on the yarding and the prices. And at sale yards right across Australia, over the last month or so, sheep have been selling for as little as a dollar a head. Now, we've seen those prices here in Western Australia too, although the sheep selling for a dollar a head are very, very plain and maybe shouldn't even be at the sale yard. And we're not talking about large numbers selling for a dollar. It probably represents about you know, 1% of the yarding on the days that that is happening. So it's important to have that context. Peter Cabot is the president of the Australian Livestock and Property Agents Association. He says most of the sheep selling for minimal values are still finding a buyer, but it's certainly a tough time for the industry. Oh, yeah, look, it is. It's very, very difficult. It's um, For the past month, the market has uh, continually dropped week after week. Um, so we're seeing, um, you know, we've got the uh, the mutton prices, you know, back under $2 a kilo. You know, that's most serious. It hasn't been that for, uh, for decades. And uh, we're seeing, um, you know, light sheep hard, hard to sell. But, uh, yeah, at no stage have I heard of any livestock that uh, that have had, you know, n- not not pens of livestock that we haven't been able to sell. We haven't been able to achieve um, some very good sales, but uh, no, I haven't heard of anything in any of the markets uh, as yet where we haven't been able to sell sheep. Okay, so that, yeah, and as I understand, not not entire lines or entire lots, but the buyers because they're able to be, I suppose, being very picky and and nominating perhaps uh, certain uh, the poorer livestock within us a lot perhaps that they won't buy yeah and look that's been the case you know that's been the case for for, for, for for years where they don't want certain types of sheep and those sheep probably shouldn't be hitting the sale yards in all fairness so I don't think that's you, you know a new issue at the moment there's probably some sheep going to the sale yards that possibly shouldn't be but uh, you know you'd have to say that that's improved vastly over the past five to ten years people are very conscious of, of, uh, of the fit to uh, fit to load rules I would say it would be a very very odd case where where one perhaps has been injured more than anything else uh, perhaps in the journey you know we're right across that as as we have been for, for for a number of years you know there's just low confidence in this job at the moment that there's a few major issues that you know that have come across uh in, in the past sort of six months and and there's uh, of course the uh the live export issue in, in western australia has had massive ramifications and and that decision uh you know by the labor government as as far as we're concerned at alpa it, it must be overturned and it must be overturned immediately Peter, for those lines at the moment selling for literally a few dollars a head, particularly rams, very hard to find processes to buy rams, I understand. I mean, does does that come down to a very difficult business decision, though, for a farmer? I mean, why pay, uh, depending on how far, but quite a few dollars to get those animals taken to market to sell them for a dollar or two dollars a head when the alternative uh, gruesome option would be just to shoot them on your farm? Yeah, and I guess you're you're 100 right there in saying that it probably does make more economical sense for them to be uh, euthanized at home. But I think um, 
you know, there's there are a lot of producers out there that that can't bring themselves to do that, and and possibly would prefer to to to, to go through the process, even though it would cost them some money, rather than uh, digging pits and uh, and shooting sheep. You know, I don't think that's uh, where they want to get to, and uh, and nor should they. So it's um, there's just a drastic oversupply of sheep at the moment, and and the seasons sort of folding in, and and this live export decision on top of that is it couldn't have come at a worse time. Are you getting any signals from the processors about what the next weeks and months hold? Because we're certainly not even in the peak selling season yet. Still, of course, a lot of lambs to come, a lot of older ewes, coal ewes to be sold. For producers trying to plan, is there, is there any information coming from the, from the processors? There's certainly no forward contracts at the moment, and, and I don't think the processors actually expected it to get this the prices to get as low as they have even in the last month. You know, I'm sure they're very conscious of the, the, the major numbers seem to run, certainly in the Riverina here. You know, September, October is a, a very busy time for us here, and, and, and in Victoria, it's probably a little later. But um, look, there's no signals of where it's going. Uh, certainly, widespread rain in the north of New South Wales would certainly help. And, uh, you know, things change very quickly. And you mentioned the Riverino. We've got, well, tens of thousands of Merino used to be sold at hay later this month. What's going to happen there? Because are those ewes going to find a home? Oh, well, they're breeding sheep, so you'd hope so. Obviously, everyone's uh, expectations on, on where the price might be might be not quite what they expected. But, look, you know, people are still going to produce, uh, you know, pe- people still want to produce lambs. A lot of those uh, merino ewes at hay are taken, taken back to either breed more merinos out of or, or, or crossbreds. You know, I don't, I don't think people are going to walk away from the industry as such. So I think those, um, the better end of the sheep will... Um, you know, they'll, they'll still have people trying to buy them. Um, I think they'll be pretty selective in the sheep they do yard in these in these markets, though, because people will know that it's it's going to be quite tough. And, you know, it, it, it'll find a level. And, and, and when it does find that level, you'll see people make some decisions around where that level's at. And, you know, I think it's important that, you know, the sheep and sheep, sheep meat industry is, you know, whilst it doesn't look it at the moment, it, it is quite positive. It's going into, you know, literally hundreds of countries. Um, there's some there there are some great markets and I think it's important to note that it's just that it's just a complete oversupply at the moment. Peter Cabot, he is the president of the Australian Livestock and Property Agents Association, and he was speaking to Angus Verley. Fourteen to one, a speckle park bull from the New South Wales mid north coast has just sold for a world record price for the breed, born ready shady sold for $150,000 to a Queensland Speckle Park stud. Now, what is astonishing about this sale is it's the very first bull Brooke and Andrew Paff have sold, and the reserve price was only $6,000. Ridiculously shocked. I think my face kind of still looks like that, to be honest. It hasn't really sunken in yet. Yeah, it was um, it was a pretty pretty special moment, that's for sure. Well, tell me about uh, born ready Shady. Well, when Shady was born, he was a black speckle pipe bull calf, and black speckles aren't really a high sought after item. So we we're a little bit disappointed, to be honest, when he was born. But um, as he started to grow, he's always been quite a standout calf, and um, yeah, he's just blossomed really. The older he got, the better he got, and we always knew he was good, but we didn't realise just how good he was. 
Now, Brooke, ahead of the sale, you're pretty surprised with the scan results for Shady, an EMA of 143. Correct. Yeah, that was um, that was mind-blowing, to be honest. We still don't quite believe it, to be honest. We're not 100% sure, but we're fairly certain that it, it might have even been an, an Australian record for an EMA for a speckle. And for those not familiar with what an EMA is, describe the importance of it. Um, it's an eye muscle area, so it's basically how much carcass is on the bone, pretty much. So the more meat you get on the bones, the more money you get. And what else did the scan results reveal about Shady? Um, he was quite impressive because he's he's basically a big ball of, of muscle and meat, pretty much. He's not over fat, which is also pretty important because you don't want too fat of cattle because it's not always great for their feet and the serving and things like that. So he was just sort of a an overall complete package. So he was meaty, muscly, but not too fat. And going into the sale, did you have any idea that he might fetch this much? Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. We we had a very, very small reserve on him, given the current market. We're, we're basically in drought again here in Guys Crossing, New South Wales. Across the board, cattle prices are back a lot. So we weren't expecting anything like this at all. What was the reserve? $6,000. Six thousand dollars. Yeah, and you got one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, and set a world record for the breed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no wonder why you're still in shock. What do you think this has done for the breed? (laughs) Oh, hopefully it's um, hopefully it's livened it up a little bit again, and um, people will start to see speckles for what they are, and yeah, hopefully it's the start of something pretty special. And so you're saying that the, the drought's starting to hit you there on the mid-north coast uh, at Dyer's Crossing. Are you having to hand-feed cattle at the moment? How's the pastures looking? Yeah, no, we've been hand-feeding for quite some time again already, so it's it's pretty average here. It's very, very dry. Brooke Paff from Born Ready Speckle Park Cattle at Dyer's Crossing on the New South Wales mid-north coast, and she was speaking to Kim Honan. Now, they have only been breeding since 2017 and as I mentioned Shady was the first bull I've actually sold. Shady's new home is at Ivory Downs Speckle Park at Collinton in Queensland. Isn't that incredible? A $6,000 reserve and taking home $150,000. 10 minutes to one. Well the Newtigate Machinery Field Day event is on at the moment in the state's great southern region And there was a new event this year which drew quite a crowd. It's called the Farmer Challenge and teams of four competed in events like the Swag Roll, the Cattle Fence Jump and the Wool Bale Flip. Tim Walter was the organiser and says it was a lot of fun. Uh, It's just a series of agricultural based things like, um, well it's actually a bit of a stockman's race in some ways, like they get out of the swag and put their boots on and put the billy on the fire and then they've got to jump over a series of cattle panels, um, sort some lupins out of wheat, roll a wool bale from a square to a square, catch some yabbies out of a a shuttle that we've cut off, catch five yabbies out and then um, throw boots, crack a stock whip, sort some recyclable cans that uh, that's our theme this year with recycling, so that's why that's in there. And then jump over a hay bale, and then it's just a relay, fast and furious type of race, yeah. No, it went well. So this is the first year it's been run at Newdigate? It is, yeah. Um, I've been the site manager for quite a few years, and I just sort of thought, 
I know they do them at Minganew and Darren, and I thought it would be great to do something like this. I don't think it's actually like a state-type competition where we run it, but being a relay. But, um, yeah, we'll see how we go next year. We might do the same thing or either we'll line up with the state one. I don't know. But um, I know the boys that won the from the ag school that won the sponsorship money, they were pretty happy to get $250 each as school kids. They couldn't believe their luck, so they were pretty happy about that. Probably off to get some show bags. It's, it's a decent prize. Yeah, it is, yeah. No, it's very um, very well supported. Through a nice big crowd, and I think there was a fair bit of laughing and that going on with people getting bitten by yabbies and just about taking their eyes out with stock whips and things like that. And, um, no, it was quite a good spectators' event. And I hear one of the, uh, the young boys put the fire out instead of boiled the billy. Yeah, yeah. One of the jobs was to get the bucket of water and put the billy on the fire, as you would, you know, make a cup of tea sort of scenario. So I grabbed the billy of water and just poured it straight on the fire, which was a bit <laughs> different, but whatever. I did ask him to put the billy on the fire. <laughs> are these, I suppose, skills that, that you still think are, are relevant in farming today, Tim? Probably some of them probably aren't really, but it's uh, just fun really, like whip cracking and obviously billy boiling, and that doesn't probably happen that much around these days. But well, obviously in the north it does, but not so much here. But um, yeah, like what, sorting lupins out of wheat, um, we all roll bales of wool around, or most of us do, with a few sheep and a bit of hay. Um, yeah, catching a few yabbies, um, sorting a few cans, I suppose, is things we do these days. But <laughs> I don't know, we didn't have any shortage of cans because the Newtigate. Lions won the grand final um, on the weekend, so yeah, cans weren't too hard to come by. <laughs> so now that the school kids have uh, have taken out year one, do you think that maybe some of the local local farmers might start practicing now that they know what's involved and get some teams together for for next year to challenge them? Yeah, I think so. I think next year might be a lot bigger. Um, you know, the spectators and word gets around, and I'm sure the school kids will probably have two or three teams in here next year. And I think it'll be, um, we'll have, we've got three courses, so we'll just probably be running heats, I'd say, next year. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll get a nice lot of teams and should be really good. We'll have to do time trials then. Tim Walter, he's the organiser of the Farmer Challenge at this year's Newtigate Machinery Field Days, which is going to wrap up, well, in a few hours' time now. And he was telling Tara DeLangraff how much fun was had this year and they're going to do it all again next year. Six minutes to one. You are off to a slightly bigger event now to the Royal Adelaide Show because one of the show's most popular events nearly had to be axed. It was the woodcutting event and the problem was organisers were really struggling to find enough suitable wood to cut but Royal Adelaide Show woodcutting chairman Graham Hyde says they did manage to find 300 logs from the southeast of the state to keep the competition going. In a minute or two, we're going to have a underhand event, and this is for novice cutters who haven't won an event yet at any show around Australia. And we have um, a couple of female competitors. One is even from the USA. I was going to say, I can see a USA T-shirt there. That's yes. amazing. Yeah, Hannah Quigley's come over from the USA with another uh, cutter. Two of them have come, and um, she's cutting an underhand block and uh, learning about our wood over here which is a lot harder for her to cut. Yeah, so she would have had to do a little bit of uh, preparation for that or to, to get ready for it? She's done some training um, but that's why she's cutting extra events to try to learn and hopefully next year she'll come back and then in 2025 we'll have an American team which she'll lead so this is prep 
Fantastic. And so how has the, the wood cutting competition been going this, this week? Yeah, it's been wonderful. We've had fabulous weather and the competition's been really hot between the competitors, but they're very jovial and they all look after each other. Grandparents are doing axes and uh, um, we had father and son and father and daughter cuts on Father's Day and uh, so it's been a really good atmosphere and running well. And so where does this wood come from? Because it's a different uh, source this year. Yes, this year is the first year that we're cutting Pinus radiata, which has um, been sourced from a company in the southeast, 141, and they've made that wood available for us. It's actually reject pine for what they needed it for, but for us, we're really happy to have it. It's plantation grown, um, so it's a plantation forest. And how come you had to switch over to, to this, um, this wood? Yes, we used to get our wood from Victoria and um, we used to use mountain ash and woolly butt, which is a, a harder wood, but they've shut down, Dan Andrews um, and the Victorian government shut down the Victorian forests, so that wood's not available to us now. And uh, even though some of the wood that we were cutting um, might have been um, planted and cut before, it's because it's a native timber, they're considering it all native forest. <laughs> and then, so being a different kind of wood is it you mentioned there that one you used to use was a bit harder is it a softer wood now that they're cutting well yes it is a softer wood but funny enough the times to cut through it aren't uh, reflective of that they're taking a little bit longer to cut it but they have to change their axes and um, they have to change the bevel on the axe and they also have to the slope as they cut through and work their way to the middle of the log to cut it off they have to change the angle of that um, a little bit more slope on it with that, the New Zealanders cut pine, so all the New Zealanders have come here with um, pine axes and are doing really well. The Australians are just catching up, they're just adjusting. And so will that change at other shows around Australia as well, This using this wood because they haven't got access to Victorian wood? Yes, this um, pine will um, start to be introduced across Australia. They'll, they'll get it from different sources, but each show tries to get it from their own region. I don't know that we'll get a lot of more hardwood. It's harder and harder to get, and it's becoming more and more valuable. So the price of it will be too high for wood cutting. So I think pine will be the future of wood cutting. Royal Adelaide Show Woodcutting Chairman Graham Hyde speaking to Brooke Nindorf at the Adelaide Show. It is a minute and a half away from the news, so off to the markets now. And 417 head of cattle sold at the Mount Barker's sale yards this morning. So numbers up around about 100 on last week. Tracy Kilner's got the details for you. Hi, Tracy. Can you run through the prices? Steers trended down in all categories while the females fluctuated with quality on the young stock and a quality lineup of cows gained overall, selling to a top of 218 cents a kilo. The Wiener steers sold from 312 to 372 cents and the Wiener heifers made from 228 to 274 cents a kilo. Yearling steers sold from 236 to 288 cents, while the yearling heifers fluctuated with quality, selling from 190 to 242 cents a kilo. 
Grown steers eased, returning 220 to 280 cents, and the grown heifer sold from 190 to 210 cents a kilo. Heavy cows gained, making 182 to 218 cents, while the heavy bulls followed the trend, selling from 185 to 192 cents a kilo. The dispersal of cow and calf units made from $1,700 to $2,000 per unit. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Uh, Tracy Kilner, thank you so much for going through those details wrapping up this week's livestock markets here in Western Australia. As Richard was mentioning earlier, there was meant to be a uh, media conference at the regarding the Calabaran incident. It was meant to start about 20 minutes ago. It hasn't started yet. More details throughout the day across the ABC. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.